0: On today's episode of Hungry for Wisdom, not all Christian music is awful. We'll teach you to put the fun back in fundamentalist. And roses are red, a deep crimson hue. And if I hear you preach prosperity, then your face will be too. It's episode six. Turn it up! I love Welcome this, to Hungry for Wisdom. This is the podcast for people who want to know what God knows. He hasn't told us everything, but man, he has told us a lot. I'm Dustin, pastor of Grace and Truth. If you want to know what God knows, let's dig in. And episode six is dedicated to a particular day on the calendar, which happens to be today, which is what, April 27th? Is that today? I don't know when this is getting released. We're putting this in the schedule. It's probably going to be way out there. But now you guys all know April 27th is Administrative Professionals Day. Aww. so there you go. Now, we have split feelings about this. By the way, I'm here with uh, the bearded beaver, Pastor Ben. And uh, I've got uh, we got mixed feelings because on one hand, we need our administrative professionals. We love our our accountants and bookkeepers and our secretaries and our assistants and whatever, because Ben, as you so eloquently put it a few minutes ago, we could nary find our shoelaces without them.
1: Amen. I I could not live without our admins here at at Grace and Truth. Yeah, and
0: yet, <laughs> and yet, do we need a holiday for everybody? Does everybody need to be celebrated and get a trophy for doing what they're good at? Well, yeah, and and
1: get off my lawn.
0: Yeah, you know, I think <laughs> I think this is the third episode in a row where you have legitimately accused me of being a grumpy old man. So I'm just going to start wearing it like a badge of honor. You know what? All right. Never mind. Today's episode... uh, uh, Hold hold on, hold on. Here we go. All right. And episode six is dedicated to grumpy old men who we should all aspire to become. And I'm well on my way. Pastor Ben, I'd prefer you catch up. But first, let's do a Proverbs Devo. Here we go. By the way, shout out to Def Kev who, uh, who made this track right here. It's called Invincible. And it's just like, as far as techno goes, it's good. Yeah. And it's royalty free. So our administrative professional reached out to him and said, yo, can we use this? He was like, yeah, it's royalty free for a reason. You go ahead and use it on the podcast. So he's not charging for it. He's just putting the music out there, letting us use it. And it's boss. So thanks to Def
1: Kev. Def Kev.
0: Yeah. I doubt he's really deaf. I don't know how he would have made this music if he was... Def. It
1: like Def jam or Def no, it's like deaf jam
0: or deaf. No, it's like D E A F. I think. Oh, and then K E V. Kev. I hope he's not deaf. Dude, I'd be super impressed though. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. If he's anyway. Doing this all via visuals. <laughs> yeah. You probably could these days. The way those programs work. All right. <laughs> these days, there I go again. These kids these days with their Pro Tools and their Auto Tune and their vocoders. Yeah. Proverbs three. Wisdom from an old man. Here we go. Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10. Honor Yahweh from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Okay, here we go. Now, all the prosperity preachers are drooling right now because I just quoted that, right? Honor Yahweh from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns, or so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new Wine, And I really hate starting out explaining a Bible passage by limiting the scope of it, but sometimes you have to, right? We, we, we have to do this, especially when we're talking about things like money. Like, for example, Jesus said almost nothing good about money. Some stuff he said about money was neutral, but he said, I, don't, I, don't, I can't really think of anything good that he said about money. But as soon as we quote something that he said, we immediately go to, now that doesn't mean that money's bad. Money's fine. It's okay. It's just, you know, maybe a little uh dangerous. And so a sermon on the dangers of money ends up being a defense of the preacher's love of money. And I, I do not like hearing that. I got to be careful, you know, to guard against doing it myself. And I've often wondered if it's possible for a preacher on TV to preach a whole sermon about money without saying anything positive about it. Because we go straight there to like, well don't let this passage be too extreme for you. You know, like Jesus did. So when I explain Proverbs 3, 9 and 10, I really hate starting out with, now here's what it doesn't mean. But I feel like, you know, I'm I'm telling you stuff that you I don't know. When I when I say stuff like that, I feel like I'm telling you not to take it seriously, right? The problem is that biblical truth like this has been so twisted by false teachers that we've heard it explained wrong so many times. We've heard it explained wrong more than we have heard it explained right. So there's a principle here that we got to get at and it's not about the money. I'm always telling you guys this. When the Bible's talking about money, it's, really, it's usually not talking about money and it's certainly not only talking about money. There's a deeper principle or a reality, right? So th- the, the principle is this. Things work better in life when we don't deny reality. You with me so far on that? Things work better in life when we don't deny reality. So if you tell me you can fly and you try to prove it by jumping off of a 10-story building, you might really believe that you can fly for about nine and a half stories, right? But eventually there's going to be a violent collision with reality because you can't fly. And so if you operate under your reality... Then your life is going to end. If you operate under reality as it actually is, it's going to go much better for you. I promise. Don't jump off the building. So, just as delusional as the belief in your own ability to fly is our belief that we own our own stuff, right? This is my money. I earned it. It's mine. Well, yeah, that's true, like depending on who you're talking to, right? If you're talking to a thief or the government, I mean, you know, tomato, tomato, right? Uh, Then then that's true. This is not your money. This is my money. I earned it. And yes, God has some commands about what to do with it, but those are God's decisions to make, not yours. But if you're talking to God and you say, this is my money, then you're just wrong. Because ownership is kind of comparative. You own your money more than a thief does, but you don't own it more than God does. You don't own it at all when you're comparing yourself to God. So God could easily say back to you, yeah, you may have earned that money, but you didn't create it, or the job that led to it, or the the natural resources that made your job necessary to go and get them out of the ground in order to produce something to earn you the money. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Was it your voice that brought all things into existence? So the truth that God has umbrella ownership over everything, over all of our stuff, including our money, that's the principle underneath this proverb. We only, quote, own it with ownership on loan from God we call it stewardship that's kind of the christian word for it that's why ben and i are always saying we are middle management right we don't actually own stuff we are stewards of it it's um it's not even really ownership it's just you know it's decision making responsibility that we have to answer for so the reality is that god is god and god made all things for his own glory so when we use his things to bring him glory we are operating according to reality and that's why solomon says honor god with your money First, don't do other things first. Do uh, do honor to him first when you've got money. He's just telling us to not pretend that we can fly. He's telling us to operate according to reality. God is first. Period. Everything else comes later, and money should follow that path because that's the way things actually are. So then we come to verse ten. Do that so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats overflow with new wine. This is the part where the prosperity preachers treat this like an investment strategy, right? If you give God a thousand dollars, by the way, the more spiritual you are, the more syllables you cram into the name of God. That's the rule in prosperity theology, right? If you give God a thousand dollars, he'll give you seven thousand, ten thousand. Do I hear a hundred thousand? It's like a, you know, divine auction or something. Now, of course, when they say it, when they, they say this kind of stuff that God will give, God will give you money if you give him money, what they mean is you give money to me. And that's giving it to God. Because, of course, you know, I'm his ambassador. I will take care of it for you. Godless scumbags. But remember, a proverb is a principle, not a promise. So you could insert the phrase, all other things being equal, right? All things being equal, if you honor the Lord with your money, he's likely to give you more of it with which to honor him. Of course, the thought quickly comes up that in this world, not all things are equal. There are illnesses and medical bills and job losses and poor family members that need our help and investments that don't pan out and there's car troubles and con men and there's all kinds of stuff right so there there are a lot of exceptions that can crowd out this principle being seen in our day-to-day lives but the fact that people don't act according to God's design doesn't change the design and the design is that God resources our worship if our life is about worship, he will make sure that we have what we need in order to carry out that worship. If your money is a tool to use for God's honor, he's interested in funding that project. Not to increase your wealth, to increase his honor if he sees fit to do so in that way. So sin, sin comes in and messes up God's beautiful plan and you know so on. But it's still better to operate by that plan. That's the point of the Proverbs. Not that this is always true, but that God has set things up in such a way that this is the pathway. All other things being set level, that is, that He will have pan out in this way more often than not. So now that I've guarded you against the idea that God is some kind of investment banker, let me say that this is most often true. This is a Jewish saying in a Jewish book, and the Jews, by the way, are are financially very prosperous by reputation and by habit, and they get that they they get like a um a really bad rap for that. But it's true for a reason. You know, you've heard the jokes about Jews running Hollywood and the banking system and etc. And there's a lot of evil in Hollywood and in the banking system. And yeah, Jews are in a lot of positions of authority there and they are people and people sin. But you can't deny that they have a culture that's better at stretching a buck than any other in history. You know, how did that happen? Their values were shaped by this passage and others like it. And even if Hollywood or the banking system is a bad example of the godly use of funds, a lot of those guys were able to buy their way into those industries with money and connections that were formed in generations past by religious Jews following this principle. So God's not screwing around. Are you having money problems? Well, try giving some of your money to the work of God and operating according to reality. Maybe money's not working for you because you're not operating according to fact. And when I say give it to God, I'm not saying give it to grace and truth. I'm not doing the prosperity preacher thing. You can't see in the studio right now, but I'm not waving a white hanky in the air and dabbing my forehead with it and going, ha! That's not what I'm doing. I'm not saying give it to me. I'm saying give it to the work of God. A missionary, a widow, maybe your local church if that's where God leads you. That's kind of plan A in the New Testament for how to, how to go about this stuff. But there's a lot of options. This isn't some fundraising pitch, you know, I'm not money grubbing. I wouldn't waste my time, by the way, tricking people with that anyway. It just leads to more financial problems. <laughs> you ever wonder this, how is it that it makes sense if like the these startup guys that are uh, that are prosperity preachers and they're they're planting churches based on a prosperity gospel and they they uh, reach out to the poor and try and trick them for money. I don't understand that. Like if you're going to try and trick somebody, go for the big fish. I don't know, just a thought. So um <laughs> well, you know, cuz they're not operating according to reality. There you go. So what I'm saying here is If you believe God with your finances, this is the principle that he generally lays out according to which his creation generally operates, all other things being set level. And it goes like this. Honor Yahweh from your wealth and from the first of all your produce so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. And these things, when they feel good and you got a lot of them, then you offer those back to God as well. And in eternity, he puts a crown on your head for the work that was done in faith uh, in, in a Godward direction, and you're going to take that crown off and offer it back to him as well, and you will be well-practiced at it from giving him everything in this life that he's given you already, and it all becomes eternal worship. Now, further this is not that's. Pastor Ben, I believe, sir, that we've got some, uh, some, some real business to attend to today.
1: Yes, we these, do. These
0: ones are not uh, super goofy. I was looking at them real quick when we put them on there, and one of these in
1: particular we wanted to... We wanted to hit and clarify. Absolutely. What do we got? In fact, this one is of of extreme importance. So uh, to you, my dear pastor, Dustin, no Easter eggs. Seriously? (laughs) You had me going on that one. That is not of extreme
0: importance. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, dude, I knew this was going to happen, and it did. So in in, uh, Sunday, I'm preaching the sermon, right? And I said something about, you know, we were talking about Romans 14 and matters of conscience and so on. And it was like, you know, I I gave a sermon illustration. I said, look, in my house, we don't do the Easter egg thing. But I'm not going to enforce that on other people's uh, house. If I go over to your house and you're doing an Easter egg hunt, like, you know, I ain't going to mess with it. You do your thing, we'll do ours, and everybody should be fully convinced in his own mind. And that's what Romans 14 says. So there are issues that are just matters of conscience. And I was making the point that you're not a stronger believer if you accept more things from the world and you're not a weaker believer if you reject certain practices, right? That's not what it's getting at. It's getting at issues of law and what, you know, the, the kosher laws and the Sabbath laws and the calendar and things like that, um, laws regarding uh, consumption of alcohol and so on. You know, some people still feel that their consciences are best served by following those laws a little more, in a little more detailed fashion. Other people have a little more liberty and Paul says, don't don't try to change each other's mind, right? You guys can operate. You, you guys can, uh, as the common bumper sticker would say, coexist. So, um, I just said, yeah, like the Easter egg thing, for example. So, and I, I knew that somebody was going to be like, why don't you let your kids do Easter egg hunts, you fascist? So uh, they didn't say it like that. I did. It was <laughs> it was in the body language. No, I, okay. So here's here's the deal. Um, I'm going to explain this, and I wouldn't do this from the pulpit, but we're on a podcast, and there's. No biblical rules for how to handle a podcast, so I'm going to go out on a limb here. I don't want to bind anybody's conscience with this, though. If you disagree with me on this, no problem. I'll even tell you where I might be wrong. Um, We don't do the Easter egg thing because when I looked into the history of Easter eggs, like, I I had the same question as everybody else. Um, Okay, so Resurrection Sunday, we're celebrating the resurrection. Why do we call it Easter? What's up with the bunnies? And bunnies don't lay eggs, so what's going on here, right?
1: (laughs) There's so some, how, there's some very important biological questions, of, at, at the very least, right, on that. Yeah, right, uh, you know, I, I wasn't the best student in in public school, but uh, you know,
0: I know enough to say um, what. So I just started looking into it. How did get? How did things get to be the way they are? Right, and it's a religious holiday. I am a Christian. The the resurrection is my thing. I feel like I should know this stuff. So um, anyway. So I'm looking into it and I just wasn't satisfied with the results, you know. So first off, it's hard to get reliable information as to where this stuff came from because there's various stories out there. You got to try and track down the credibility of it. And that's where I might be wrong. Where I might be wrong is the history that I kind of see that, that I see as the most credible version of how things got to be the way they are. It's not perfectly substantiated and I might have my details off. So I can't force this on somebody else. But basically the um the the feast of Easter, you know, has, as you look back through history, there were a lot of Christian holidays that were celebrated at the same time as pagan holidays. Some people get really cranky about that. They say, well, December 25th, that was a pagan holiday for uh, Mithras, what was it? Anyway, some, some pagan holiday. And I'm like, yo, I don't care. I'll take the Christmas tree. I don't care if that was a pagan ritual first. Now here's what it means, right? And my big thing is like, yo, people can have their Christmas, the pagans can have their Christmas tree back when I get my rainbow back. Until then, I'm keeping it. (laughs) <laughs> you know nice you can't have my rainbow dog but now if i wear a rainbow shirt people aren't thinking oh it's a covenant from genesis 9 that guy's never going to flood the earth again no they're thinking oh he he you know he he disagrees with romans 1 so when i get my rainbow back we'll talk until then tough noogies but when it comes to a bunny or eggs there's no there's no connection there with you know with the scriptures um or with with biblical um teaching so anyway the, the I'm, I'm fine with celebrating A feast at a time when the pagans are also celebrating a feast. Doesn't bother me. We don't know the date of the crucifixion or the resurrection. Although, Kostenberger just released that book where they think they nailed it down. Ooh. Yo, dog. Uh, April 3rd for the crucifixion and April 5th for the resurrection is what they're saying.
1: Interesting. Yeah.
0: Bought the book because I'm preaching through Luke right now. So when we get to the end of Luke, I want to read their case for it. I haven't read it yet, but it's sitting on my shelf and I'm really looking forward to getting to it.
1: Okay. So anyway.
0: But we don't, as far as I know, we don't actually know the date of the resurrection. So we can celebrate the darn thing whenever we want to, right? The, the the holiday, I mean. So then the question of where all this stuff came from is like, well, why the bunnies? And because the pagan version of the celebration was a fertility festival, right? And the fertility festival was basically, I mean, this is an egregiously abbreviated version, but you know, they would get together and have a big freak fest. And then the babies that came from that, they would sacrifice back to oh. a pagan god so you got two two symbols of fertility you got a bunny because you know they tend to like you know multiply and then you got eggs which is new life and so these two things would come together in the feast of ishtar which got anglicized as easter and ishtar is a very uh, bad character in the bible and it I, i think i just said this in the last episode too first corinthians 10 Um, Paul says that these are actually demons we're talking about here. So Ishtar is a demon, and if that's where the word Easter came from, that's why I typically go with the term Resurrection Sunday. Also, just to drive home the point of the resurrection, because that's what we're celebrating, right? So you got bunnies, fertility symbol for a fertility festival, which is just a big fat orgy. And then you've got eggs, which is new life, and then they would sacrifice the babies and paint eggs with the blood. So I'm not big into Easter eggs or painting or dyeing them, right? That's me. Fair. Fair. Now, I could also be wrong about that. You know what I mean? So that's that's the the best that I've been able to dig up. But it's been a few years since I've reevaluated that. And by a few I mean like seven or eight, so quite a few. And there may be better information out there now. So I'd be happy to reconsider it and I'm not gonna foist that on somebody else. But that's that's me. And so I don't buy into the idea that somebody's like, Oh, you don't wanna you don't you don't wanna do an Easter egg hunt. Um, you must be the weaker believer. I'm like and this is what I said on Sunday. Yeah, or maybe I'm not a Satanist, you know, because if you, <laughs> if you know certain things and it's satanically connected, to stay away from those things would be to hate the garment that's stained by the flesh, which, it, by the way, is also in the Bible. That's in the book of Jude, right? So protecting, you know, liberating your conscience is not the only verse in the Bible. There are parameters on how to do this and what you may accept and what you may not. That one's out of bounds for me. If, um, so in that case, I would not be wrong out of weak faith. I would be wrong out of misinformation, yeah. yeah, but I might be wrong. But anyway, that,
1: that's what's up with that, and probably some of the ways maybe for those of you listening to. Uh, to maybe verify this information, obviously you can you can look on the internet, but you have to use all of the caveats and addendums. Right? Don't believe everything you read on the internet from Christians either. Stay yeah, away from the please. fundies,
0: man. I, I don't trust the King James Only guys for yeah. this because they love the conspiracy theories and they don't verify
1: them. Absolutely, and especially I, I, you know I've found this uh, the the more o- the older a website looks like if it's running Times New Roman font and like <laughs> rainbow colors and moving gifs from like you know the from the early two thousands, yeah, like pixelized things. car driving yeah. across the top yeah. of the banner. Yeah. Yeah seriously uh a big warning on that one why um, is that anyway i don't know man i think it's it's almost like a like maybe it maybe it's their idea of like ancient knowledge because you know it's from you know decades ago when the internet was first digital formed. medieval days exactly <laughs> but um you know and, and and be wary of even just the sites that we tend to go to like wikipedia it's edited by lots of people so just just be aware yeah. of that try to go to credible sources um, and uh, if you have any questions on that um, we, I mean you know your pastor certainly would be would be happy to talk talk with you and, and yeah. to help vet you know which sources might possibly even sources that might agree with what we like yeah. might not necessarily be the safest sources to build a whole uh, case against something on
0: Yeah, and sometimes these things will be um, you know exposed if they write exposed in all caps, oh gosh, ignore it. I, you know, again, I don't know where that trend came from, but I, I've never seen a trustworthy um, expose of something that was written in all caps. I don't know why. It's like, calm down, people. Just make your statement. So um, if you if you see it on a ministry or a ministry webpage or a church webpage or something like that, go read their doctrinal statement, too. And if their doctrinal statement elevates everything to a level 10 of importance, then forget it. I mean, we were just looking at this one for, uh, who's this dude? Um, uh, yeah, um, Mr. Jowls, um Robert, Robert Breaker. Yeah, Robert Breaker. There you go. And so we're like, yeah, he's saying some stuff that's kind of weird. So we go and look at his doctrinal statement. Everything is like a gospel issue there. There's no gradation of like, yeah, we, we believe this, you know, and without this you cannot be saved. And then we believe this other stuff and we practice accordingly. We'll hold fellowship with folks that disagree on those issues. There was none of that. It was like, yeah. you know, if you disagree on our take on the Second Amendment, you're not you're not believing the Bible or whatever it was. I don't know. So. Check yeah. the doctrinal statements. All right, so that's that is Easter eggs. All right. Um, By the way, I still I, I love to eat hard boiled eggs. Oh yeah. So I will say this: um, we we always have uh, family coming to town for Resurrection Sunday, and some of my family brought dyed Easter eggs, and so they were in my kitchen. Now they don't know my thing about because I'm not running around advertising it, right? So there's a bowl full of these dyed Easter eggs, these hard boiled eggs. You better believe I ate like six of those
1: things. Nice. You know? Okay. So, meat sacrificed to idols, right? Yeah, there we go. So slightly on topic, okay. resurrection eggs. Why the egg? You never heard of those? No. Oh, cool. Well, um, at least in in various churches, they actually have like the empty eggs, and they have like twelve little twelve little trinkets that basically deal with aspects of the resurrection or Christ's life, and they hide those, and the kids get them. And interesting, and, yeah. So again, you know, it's like, hey, we're taking the Christmas tree, and instead yeah. of uh, instead of putting a bunch of sacrifices underneath or whatever like that we are claiming we're taking and claiming it so
0: yeah yeah and there'd be a conversation to have there, the same conversation about the christmas tree there'd be a conversation to have about syncretism and what's wise and what's not but I'd, i'd say that's a move in the right direction yeah
1: yeah okay well hard boiled eggs definitely delicious absolutely and uh but not pickled eggs I don't, I don't. I don't get down with the. Yeah, I, I, I can understand. I got... that. Yeah, it makes sense. All right, okay. So, second, this is and that. This actually is probably the one where we're going to have the the most meat on here. Is I'm a carnivore. This comes. Uh, this comes from a listener. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Good, good question,
0: and a question that causes a lot of people doubt and fear. Amen. You know, because Jesus says in uh, is uh, Matthew 12 and Mark 3, I believe, um, where he says that, look, there is one sin that will not be forgiven, and that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's it. Now, when you look in those passages, uh, what's going on there and what he's rebuking, what they're doing is they're ascribing the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil, okay? So they're saying, well... Yeah, we see Jesus doing all these miracles. He must be empowered by Satan. And Jesus says, hey, you can speak a word against even the Son of Man, and it'll be forgiven you. But if you speak a word against the Holy Spirit, if you blas— He says, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say speak a word against him. He says, you can speak a word against the Son of Man, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven you. So now we've got this category opened up for an unforgivable sin, which is tough because you know, we're we're fond of saying... And it's appropriate in a lot of ways. We're, we're fond of saying like, hey, if you've still got breath in your lungs, you have a chance to repent and be saved. But now there's an exception. Now there's, there's somebody for whom that is not true. You have committed a sin that cannot be forgiven. So we get a lot of people that get freaked out that they have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And yeah. they can't be saved. And there are a lot of um, kind of cheap stock answers that I'm not a fan of because they don't come from the Bible. And so most people, like the, the most common answer, I shouldn't say most people, the most common answer to that, the answer that takes the biggest slice of the frequency pie is, um, well, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit can only be committed by people who don't care that they're committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So the fact that you're asking that question means you're fine, right? The fact mm-hmm. that you're worried about it means you're fine. Now, that may be true, but that's not, the, that's not in the Bible, right that's that's yeah. an answer that they made up which is a logical conclusion of some of their theology and
1: i think it's probably correct but that's not the bible's answer well and i think in some ways you if if mark and matthew felt it critically important to include this in their gospel presentation yeah. to others that this must have something of importance even to believers yep now the fact that they didn't really
0: explain it why not that's also right? a good question, and the my my gut level response to that is they expected that people knew what they were talking about, or Jesus when he said it expected that people knew what he was uh, talking about. So then the question from there is: Are there other places in the Bible where this is defined? I'm going to take you to what I think is the clearest one, and then we'll we'll take a look at a couple others. First um, John chapter two, verse nineteen, and actually let me just. I might even read a few more verses beyond that. First um, John two nineteen. So this is John, who, by the way, was in the room when Judas was filled with the holy uh, with with, um, with Satan. And sorry, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, filled with Satan. Got to get those ones straight. Um, when Judas was filled with Satan and and left, and then betrayed Christ. John was watching all this stuff happen. So now he's writing this. And in First John two nineteen, he's talking about these types of guys, and he says they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that, that they might be manifest that n- none of them were of us. Okay, I grabbed a new King James here. That's not my favorite translation of that verse, but you get the point. It, it could be a little more clear to say they went out from us because they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out that it might be demonstrated that they were not of us. That's closer to the NASB. So what he's saying here is, when, when people leave the fellowship, when they when they walk away from their Christian community and association and they deny Christ, they are showing that they were never really of us to begin with. Now, this is a pretty um, typical, I guess you'd call it a reformed answer because the question comes up, you know, can I lose my salvation, right? And the I, I think the reformed camp has the right answer in this. Well, no, if you... If 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 the Bible talks about being born again and regenerated and sealed with the Holy Spirit, you got to ask the question: how how does all that get undone? And you look in the Bible for answers, and you don't see one because the Bible never allows for that question to take place. Like in John ten, he says, "No, no, no, no one will be snatched from my hand." Well, then what happens when people turn away from the faith? Boom! John comes in and says it: they were actually not of us; they were false brothers. Right? Mm-hmm. So, um, they they show that when they go out of us and that's what Ju- that's what Judas did. Now we see also in the book of John that well know, and Luke that Judas had been robbing the treasury and had his his focus on the finances and the money yep. before he betrayed Christ. So there was this track record of of secret sin in his heart that in the end it ended up being that he was never really a disciple of Christ. He was a follower with his feet, but he was not a follower with his heart. So in the end he went out from us because they were not of us. I'm going to make the case here that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to experience the community of God and the Spirit's work in the community of God and not believe, not be born again, and then to turn away, okay? So that final turning away is what I'm going to say is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Let me go to Hebrews chapter 6. So in Hebrews 6, this is one of the scariest passages in the Bible, and it should be. It's here as a warning for a reason. Um, Verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Okay, so we would say we're talking about Christians here. I mean, that's the way it looks, right? So again, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. So they had light shining on them, right? They had, they, they interacted with this stuff. They have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, I think that would be different than you know um, drinking deeply of the, the waters of God. Excellent. Consuming, Absolutely. yep. Uh, being filled with, but they've tasted the heavenly gift. They have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. So they have benefited from him, his work. They've they've interacted with, they've rubbed elbows with the Holy Spirit or whatever he's doing and have tasted the good word of God. They've had the, the Bible given to them, preached to them. They've been discipled, maybe, whatever. And the powers of the age to come. I'll just go ahead and say they've seen miracles, right? They've seen people get healed in response to prayer, maybe. Um, verse 6, if they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance, Whoa! since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So we've got here, uh, just to tie all of this together, we've got Jesus saying there is one sin that will not be forgiven and it's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Then we've got the author of Hebrews saying there is one type of sin that it is impossible to restore. Then in 1 John 5, I didn't read this one, but he's going to say there is a sin which leads to Death. Yeah. He says, don't even bother praying for it, right? Um, and then John explains all of this in First John 2. Like, assuming all of these are talking about the same thing, he explains it and says, it's because they were never really believers. So let's go back now and see what Jesus was talking about. He was healing people, casting out demons, and the Pharisees are saying that's the work of the devil. Jesus then is looking at them and saying, you're literally tasting the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The power of God in the work of the Holy Spirit is right in front of your face, and you guys call yourselves believers. You're a part of the community of God's covenant people, and you have a lack of faith. You will not be forgiven this. You're cut off, right? So that turning away from unbelief, after having experienced God, after having Him, you know, uh, call you through His His Word and His works and His community and all these these witnesses and everything like that, you turn away. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, right? And I'm I'm confident in this. This is not this is not the typical explanation of it, right? But I'm confident in it because, well, I should back up. I used to be nervous about this. I was like, this is how it looks to me in the Bible. It looks like Jesus calls it the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, the author of Hebrews calls it. Um, the the unforgivable sin, essentially, I'm summarizing. And then John calls it the sin that leads to death. We've got three authors using three different phrases to talk about the same thing here. That seems like pretty good biblical context. If we're going to let the Bible comment on itself, then I'm comfortable with that. But I was nervous because I'd never heard anybody else say it, right? And it's like your term theological innovation. Is that what it is? Yeah, you do
1: not want to be a theological
0: innovator. Right, right. So I was a little nervous and I didn't say it out loud for a long time. And then, you know, when I looked into it a little more, um, there were some, some theologians that I trusted that were like, you know that said the same thing. and I was like, okay, guys that are smarter than me have said this before for hundreds of years. I did not come up with this. It's, it was just discovered from the Bible. So having been affirmed by the Christian community in this thing, I feel a little more comfortable with it that I'm not just making this up. But that's that's essentially what it is. Now, the, the stock answers kind of fall short. I think, right? They, they wind up being too simple and not accounting for all the information. On a previous podcast episode, you mentioned Occam's Razor. The simplest explanation is the best one. Um, now, I, I'm not correcting you. I know you know this, the, but to, to fill out the principle, what William of Occam said fully was the best inf- the, the best explanation which accounts for all of the information, yeah. right, is, is the best explanation. That's the right one. So the simplest explanation which accounts for all the information. So I think if we're going to talk about you know what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? If people say, "Well, it's attributing the works of God to the to Satan," it's too simple because nobody's
1: doing that these days. Well, and uh, well, actually, the question might be, you know, if we, for example, we do have theologians and pastors that we know that will say certain works in particular churches of maybe a charismatic variety are uh, yeah yeah you're right works you're right. of the enemy. Right? right or distractions or chaos you know the god is not a god of all that so therefore are they attributing the work of the spirit to the enemy or if you take the flip side of that those that are our charismatic friends and brothers that might be engaged in those works of signs and miracles and things like that are they misattributing the works of of you know again by by our super conservative brethren works may be done by other spirits to, to god oh. are they guilty of that of that so, blasphemy miswording uh, or or mal wording of
0: of the holy spirit so we could wind up in a situation where john MacArthur and jack hayford are going back and forth and john MacArthur says hey the miracles and the the visions and all of that that is a work of satan well if if he's wrong about that, then he has committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He will not be forgiven, and John MacArthur's going to burn in hell. Conversely, I'm, this is an you know, argument absurdum, obviously, but I'm just seeing where where this ends. Conversely, if if Jack Hayford looks at MacArthur and says, you're denying the works of God that are going on right in front of you, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and he's wrong about that, then he might be committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, yeah. he's going to burn in hell. Okay, so what are the stakes on this? And I think that's... That's where the typical explanation falls short is like, look, if all we're talking about here is pronouncing the, if all we're talking about here is saying, no, that's not the work of God, then like half of our church before they got saved did that. And half of every church before they got saved did that. And if showing up to church and being a part of the covenant community without having faith is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, we all did that before we were regenerate, right? Mm -hmm. Most of us, unless you got saved outside of church and then came later, and so there's got to be an actual sin, like a turning away. And, and another, another one of the common explanations is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is unbelief. Well, it's true that unbelief won't be forgiven, but that's too simple. That doesn't account for all the information because in the judgments, uh, in the eschatological judgments, people, you know, people are judged by the book of their works. Right? They're not judged by whether it's, the only you hear this a lot in youth groups. The only question you're going to hear when you die and get to the gates so to speak is you know did you believe or did you not believe and they'll say it is not your sin that sends you to hell it's unbelief that sends you to hell and that's not really accurate that's not detailed enough your sin does send you to hell we we are punished in a very detailed manner and by degree for our sin belief in Christ is the
1: only thing that saves us from that yeah the books will be open exactly exactly we will be examined, but yep. at the end of the day, is our, is, our, is our defense attorney the judge himself or not? Do we have
0: to answer for ourselves in front of a holy God, Amen. right? So not believing in Christ is too simple to say that that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. There is a definitive turning away. There's a definitive revelation of God that not everybody gets. Not everybody gets that. When, when Jesus was showing the work of the Holy Spirit to the Pharisees, there were a lot of people in the world that were not seeing it. And the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was only happening by those guys that were seeing it, right? So there's a definitive turning away from the community of faith after having been a false brother or sister that it is impossible to restore from. There is a sin unto death, not just a general state of unbelief. So to, to summarize, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to have been functioning in a Christian community and professed faith or, you know, communicated it in some way even if it's by assumption and by association and then to leave and reject and turn away from the gospel and the holy spirit that has been revealed to you got it any okay. any, any other avenues
1: uh that need to get explored in that well i think usually what ends up happening the reason that people bring up this question is there's a fear yeah. a have i committed it or could i commit it mm-hmm. so speaking pastorally to that yeah how how might how might we help those who maybe have that fear yeah
0: um i think romans 10 is a great place to go here because it gives such such basic assurance uh you know if you confess with your mouth that jesus is lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved somebody in first john 2 19 can't do that right um so he he leads you to christ there he says if you're going to come to christ you you yes you have to have a regenerate heart here's what it's going to look like and then in verse 13 he gives this wonderful promise everyone who calls upon the name of the lord will be saved the blasphemy of the holy spirit is to not call upon the name of the lord and to deny him once he has been revealed to you that's you know to call upon the name of the lord would be the opposite of committing the blasphemy of the holy spirit so that's it's not the same thing as saying well if you're worried about it then you know, you, um, then that's a sign that you don't need to worry. If, if you're worried about it, then you don't need to worry about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. But Romans 10 just flat out says like, Hey, you can be saved. Yeah. So don't commit blasphemy, be saved. And so, yeah, if somebody's, when somebody is worried about it, I just say, let's go to Romans 10 and let's just believe the word of God, Yeah. you know? And first John also, if your heart convicts you, we have an advocate that's greater, Amen. you know? Yeah. And so if you're worried and you're scared that you've committed the blasphemy of the Holy spirit, yeah. I want to lead you to put your trust in what, God has
1: said rather than what you feel or what your yeah. fear is. This is where faith comes in. Is there, would there be, I mean, I, I would think that, I would think that even even the calls to self-examination introspection when it comes to faith would be important here. Examine myself. Am I really believing what Jesus has done or am I somehow either, either discounting it or trying to add to it. 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves yeah, to see if Christ is in you. Exactly. So it's it's a serious thing. I think it's a reason why the, the the authors of the Gospels have included that. That's why the author of Hebrews did. I think sometimes that first cursory look, without examining all of the information, can sometimes lead us down difficult roads yeah. that, that may not be helpful.
0: Well, sure, and context matters. I mean, the, the original audience is a huge deal when... When the author of Hebrews was writing this, he was writing it to, guess what? Hebrews. And these guys were a member of, these guys were members of a covenant community who were prone to the assumption that they were going to be saved because they were born Jewish. And, So he gives warnings in there in chapters 2 and 3 and 6 and 10 and probably some other 13, right? Mm -hmm. So he gives all these warnings in there to tell them, like, don't fall into this. So when we read just a few verses out of chapter 6 and we assume he's talking to individual Gentiles without the same um, uh, theological assumptions and pitfalls, then, you know, we can kind of go off track there. So, yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. So we want uh, want to— end this episode with a segment that we've only done one other time before, but I think it's important. Uh, A segment we call, this is one of the this and that's that's not pastoral Q&As. We call it uh, Songs of Particular Awesomeness. And last time I did this, I did not call it that. So that's the new title for it. So Songs of Particular Awesomeness. Because not all Christian music is garbage. There's a lot of good stuff out there. God's got some creative artists and stuff. Now, by the way, why is it? that the best Christian music that's written doesn't make it onto the radio. What's up with that? Why does Christian radio suck, Ben?
1: Because it all has to follow a particular formula. formula chords one, four, five, and then, this, then the minor six. If and, the, and, the, and the minor six, yeah. And when they go to the six, they act like it's a magic trick. Like, I'm going to save it for the bridge and it's a minor two chord. What are you going to do with that? Oh, that just happened. And it's like,
0: yeah, just like every other.
1: Well, and song. every once in a while, throw in the minor second because it, it provides a nice
0: yeah, nice turnaround, yeah, I don't know, as if jazz has never happened, guys, <laughs> we're so nerdy,
1: <laughs> the 36251
0: is way better than what you just did, grow up, put off childish things, anyway, no, I do feel that way, though, like, there are a lot of songs here that, that uh, Micah will play, and I, I don't listen to a lot of Christian radio, and so I haven't heard them before, right, yeah. But he'll hear the song, hear quality lyrics, a decent chord progression, things like that, and he'll play it, and, and I'm hearing it for the first time in worship, and I'm like, oh, this is a really good song. He found a good song. Then six months later, I'll hear it on the radio when I'm driving my kids to baseball practice or something, and I'm like, this song's horrible. It's it's. There's no art. There's no creativity. There's no pulse. Like I want to hear Micah do it. Yeah. It's sad. Yeah. You know what I think happens? I think these guys write songs, and then... They, they go into the studio and the producer guts it of all of its heart because he says, we know what sells, follow the system. And yes. so they slow it down by 15 beats a minute. yeah And they they move it up um, maybe two steps so that the guys are singing at the top of their range and it's much more emotive and stuff like that. And it just winds up being these like cookie cutter, like putting a Christian song on the radio is like making a box of cornbread these days. You just put in the same ingredients, you get the same yep. result, right? But- Get off my lawn! <laughs> but there is, there is good stuff being written. So we want to give some shout-outs. Um, this is a song, we, and you're going to find a lot of good stuff from uh, from these guys. Sovereign Grace Music. Been around a while. They got a songwriter as of, I think, pretty recently, a guy named uh, Matt Merker, who is just doing some killer stuff. So rather than doing the, the normal um, outro, the... That thing, what we're going to do is we're just going to play this tune and let you guys listen to it. And um, it's, it's one that I think is worth singing, not just in church, but in our own daily lives. This one is called A Christian's Daily Prayer. And there's three verses in it. And the verses just basically go through um, how we could pray at each part of the day. So morning, evening, and night. So for example, I'm not going to read you all the lyrics, but the first verse. As morning dawns and day awakes, to you I bring my need. O gracious God, my source of strength, in you I live and breathe. Each hour is yours by wisdom planned, each deed empowered by sovereign hands. Renew my spirit, help me stand, be glorified today. I'll read you the the third verse. As sun gives way to darkest night, your spirit still is here. So So it started in the morning, ends with the night. There's one for, you know, lunchtime in the middle. As sun gives way to darkest night, your spirit still is here. And though my strength fades like the light, new mercies will appear. I rest in you abide with me until our trials and suffering give way to final victory be glorified today. That's a great set of lyrics guys and by the way beautifully executed musically it's in uh, uh it's in 6/4 because all of sovereign graces music is in 6/4 these days. So but you know what Maybe they haven't broken out of that mold a whole lot, but they rock it like nobody else. So I'll give them some, some uh, you know, grace on that one because I'm a Christian. So we're going to uh, just f- fade out here with a Christian's daily prayer. I recommend that you just take a minute and listen. Good tune, and it will feed your soul.
1: Way to darkest night, your spirit still is here, and
0: though my strength fades like the light, new
1: mercies will.